These God-breathed words of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew is continuing as we walk through to show us who Jesus is according to God's word. Who Jesus of Nazareth is according to God's word. And it's in this way that Matthew is also beginning to address this question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? This was certainly a challenging question for the first century church. In fact, for every era of the church, this has been a challenging question that needs to be met. But very much so in that first century, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Many viewed Christianity and being a follower of Jesus and discipleship as just being a sect or a particular part of Judaism, of a crazy and fraudulent rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth. Well, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And Matthew is showing us the only way we can really appreciate or understand what that is, is not from hearsay or different opinions. We have to understand it from God's word. Who does God think or believe Jesus to be? We live in a time and a place where being a disciple of Jesus Christ can mean just about anything. Just like being a Christian or a pastor, or a mother, can mean just about anything. And so it demands of us, as we gather together, what does it mean for us to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And how does being a disciple of Jesus Christ make any difference in our lives, in our church, and in our world? Well, as we come to these God-breathed words of Matthew 4, and we come to the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And we come to this portion where Jesus is beginning the gospel ministry in this northern region called Galilee. This northern region, which traditionally was assigned to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and is on the northern border that's surrounded by many of the pagan and idolatrous nations, Syria, Phoenicia, all of these different areas that the Lord warned his people not to make treaties with, not to work with, and not to follow in their ways in their pursuit of wealth and idolatry, but instead to separate themselves as the people of the one true God, as the light of the world. Well, Jesus comes to this area, and this is where his ministry of the gospel begins. And it's a ministry that begins with making disciples. We cannot separate the gospel ministry from making disciples. That's one of the reasons why in our mission statement, our mission statement is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It goes hand in hand with the gospel, the good news of what God has done to save sinners like you and I. But as we come through and we see how Jesus makes disciples, Jesus makes it very clear that a disciple of Jesus Christ is not typical of what discipleship was thought to be then and what it is thought to be now. A disciple of Jesus Christ is not like any other disciple. And this is because what sets apart a disciple of Jesus Christ is not us, our politics, or our beliefs, or our preferences, or our denominations. What sets apart a disciple of Jesus Christ is Jesus. It's who he is. It's what we talked about and sang about this morning. It's what Eric shepherded us in. It's about 
Christ's presence and His power in our lives. And so here's, if you will, the big truth for today. This is what we're going to focus on as we go through Matthew 4, 12 through 22. That discipleship, according to Jesus, is a life-saving, life-transforming relationship with Jesus as Lord and King of all. Discipleship, according to Jesus, is a life-saving, life-transforming, or we might say sanctifying, relationship with Jesus. But Jesus, as He is in God's Word, as the Lord and King of all. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, and we'll read through these God-breathed words together. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Matthew's talking about Jesus here. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, with these words, Matthew gives us a glimpse of the beginning of Jesus' public or gospel ministry in the region of Galilee. And through this, what we see in his gospel ministry, it's very much about calling disciples or making disciples. And here, Matthew shows us the calling of the very first disciples, two pairs of brothers who are local fishermen in the Galilee region, Simon and Andrew, and James and John. And Matthew uses the term disciple in his gospel no less than 74 times. The idea of what a disciple is, is very important to Matthew. You might almost call Matthew's gospel the disciples' gospel. It's one of the reasons when y'all get baptized or become members, we give you a copy of the gospel of Matthew. And in its broadest sense, okay, in its broadest sense, a disciple refers to someone who is following Jesus as the promised Messiah and Christ of Scripture or God's Word. The one who has come to bring God's salvation and his judgment, the one who has come to bring God's kingdom, God's power, his authority, and his rule into this dark and fallen world. 
that was generally speaking the idea or notion that most people had when they made a decision or choice to follow Jesus or respond to his preaching in first century Palestine. But as you study history and you consider the history of the church, you'll know that this term disciple is not unique to the Bible or Christianity. Our English word disciple comes from the Latin, discere, which means to learn. And the Latin word discipulus, which means a student. Or our word discipline, which does not mean you're using the memorat on your children. It refers to instruction and training. Discipline, instruction and training. And in Greek, the word for disciple is methetes. And it refers to one who engages in learning through instruction from another. One who engages in learning through instruction from another. And so you see from this very much this notion of being a pupil, being a student, someone who studies, being a learner. Being, in the old school way, an apprentice of a teacher or a master or a rabbi or a guru. And typically, and this existed in the Roman Empire and the Greco-Roman world as well, and those who were students or disciples of great philosophers, in the same way that Plato was a disciple of Socrates, the idea of a disciple is that he would, his aim or goal, typically, is to master the wisdom or the knowledge or the skill of their instructor or master. But to do so for themselves. And so the purpose or the intent through this is that this disciple might one day himself or herself, but usually himself, become the master themselves. Okay, and so we see this throughout history. This idea of apprenticeship or being a student or being disciple of a master and learning that body of skill, how to do something in an expert way so that one day you too might gather a following and be a master and make a name for yourself. Well, you can see and you can begin to see how this is different from what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. One of the books my boys enjoy reading is this series called The Ranger's Apprentice. And that's the typical idea of what a disciple is. Where a young orphan goes and he is made an apprentice of one of the king's rangers. And he lives with the king's rangers. And he learns from them how to do all their skills. So that one day he can become a hero and he can become a ranger in his own right. And we see this in our society today where people talk about being a disciple of Martin Luther King or a disciple of Gandhi or a disciple of whoever it is. And brothers and sisters, not infrequently, this is how we think of discipleship in the church as well. We talk about disciples of John MacArthur, disciples of John Piper, disciples of Tim Keller. And we talk about discipleship programs where we learn a specific style of ministry or we learn to master a way of ministry or we learn a way in which we can make disciples to give people four spiritual laws or to walk them through steps or to walk them through a program so that by the time they're finished, they too can become a disciple maker. And typically what that involves in most church arenas is this path of bringing people together for a cause. 
And we tend to do it through relationships or service or activities. Get people involved in missions. Get people involved in a children's program. Get people involved in relationships in the local church so we can gather people together to be disciples together. And we see how much this is akin to many of the Christian movements throughout history. There's this desire in our hearts to be part of something greater than ourselves. And so very frequently there will be a gospel movement together for the gospel. Or a reformed and restless movement. Or a works and signs and wonders movement. And the list goes on and on. And this is very much, as you see, our framework of discipleship is very much like the world. But according to those words that we just read, God's word, a disciple of Jesus Christ is something very, very different. And brothers and sisters, it's something far more wonderful and far more life-changing And of greater worth than simply studying to become a master and gathering people together. And this is because a disciple of Jesus and discipleship according to Jesus is about a relationship with the Son of God. A relationship with Jesus as King and Lord of our lives. A relationship and a fellowship with Him that saves our lives and changes our lives completely and entirely. And of course the challenge with that, brothers and sisters, is that is a relationship that most people do not want. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. Discipleship, according to Jesus, begins with Jesus as the Lord and King of God's Word. Discipleship, according to Jesus, begins with Jesus as the Lord and King of God's Word. I was invited years ago by a gracious friend to his wedding, and it was a Jewish wedding. And at that Jewish wedding, a friend of the bride and groom When he found out that I was a, and am still, a Christian, he said to me, well, you know, I believe Jesus was a teacher of great wisdom, and I have learned a lot from him. Now, coming from a Jewish person, this is a very gracious thing to say, because most religious and Orthodox Jews consider Jesus a fraud, And most Orthodox and religious Jews have viewed the Christian church and Christian disciples as the people who have persecuted them and thrown them into concentration camps and burned them as heretics and taken their money. So in actual fact, this was a very liberal and gracious thing for this man to say to me. And I know he thought he was being kind to me. But essentially what he was saying to me was the same thing that Mahatma Gandhi said And Martin Luther King said, and quite frankly, even Hitler, Donald Trump, and Vladimir Putin have said on various occasions when it suited them to take words of Jesus for their particular cause. Jesus is a good teacher who has useful words to say, and his words can help you if you need it, fix a problem or make your life better. But the clear testimony of Matthew chapter 4 is that Jesus is no guru. 
He is no rabbi. He is not the leader of a movement. And as you read through the Gospels, you will see fairly consistently anytime someone pursues Jesus in that way and seeks him out to be his disciple, to be his student, to learn from him. Jesus invariably turns them away. Good teacher. Why do you call me good teacher? There is no one good but God. Well, the clear testimony of Matthew chapter 1 through 4 is that Jesus is not a good teacher per se. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the beloved and faithful Son of God. He is the fulfillment of all God's promises. And He has come not to start a church, not to start a seminary, not to start a school, not to start a mission, not to start a movement. He has come, according to Matthew 4, 12 through 16 and Isaiah 9, as the Messiah and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he has come, as promised in God's word, verse 16, to bring the infinite power and the presence and the glory of God to a people who are dwelling in darkness. Brothers and sisters, in discipleship, we sell Jesus short. Because he has come to bring the fullness of God's power, the fullness of God's presence, the fullness of God's glory and goodness into your life and mine. Not so that we stay the same, but so that we can be transformed and brought out of the darkness and brought into the light. Because nothing less than the fullness of God's power can do that. And how exactly does the Son of God and the King of Kings fulfill God's word and bring God's glory to a people who are dwelling in darkness? Does he do it through a crusade? Does he do it through a Bible conference? Does he do it through a rally? Does he do it through a church training program or a discipleship program? Well, verse 16 and 17 shows us says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach or proclaim, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Brothers and sisters, Christ brings light into our dark lives by calling us to repent And showing us that God's glory, His infinite goodness and grace and kindness and mercy has come near to us through the gospel and through the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, teachers teach. Coaches coach. Masters train. Leaders lead. But God commands. And it's how this has been since Genesis 1, where God said, let there be light, and there was light. And what is God's command that brings His light, His glory, His power, and His presence to sinners who are lost and enslaved in the darkness of their sin? It's repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's referring to the infinite goodness and glory of God. He's referring to God's authority and his power and very specifically God's rule. 
And when he says it's at hand, he's saying that this kingdom has come near to us. What is the problem in Ukraine at this time? The kingdom of Vladimir Putin is at hand. It's on every border, coming closer and closer in an attempt to take control in a destructive way. The good news of God's word, brothers and sisters, is the very opposite. That the infinite goodness and grace and kindness and truth of God has come near to us to take charge and control and rule of our lives in the person and presence and the proclamation of Jesus. But brothers and sisters, that's only good news if you want to leave the darkness. And according to Matthew 4, true discipleship does not begin with a church mission or a program. True discipleship begins with the kingdom of heaven coming near to us in the person and proclamation of Christ. Not as a guru, not as a life coach, not as a BFF, but as the Holy Son of God, as the King of light of God's word. I raise this question because many come and say, well, I tried discipleship and it didn't work. And I tried repentance. And we repented for a while and we stopped doing our sin. But after a while, there was no change. And you see these discipleship movements come back and forth. And they're there for a season and they go away. And you see these movements come. And people are happy for a season. And in the end, there's a trail of broken dreams. Why is discipleship in the church so often powerless and pathetic? Matthew shows us. It's because rarely is our discipleship about Jesus. More often than not, it's about us. Rarely is our discipleship centered around the power and presence of Christ and his word ruling our lives as king and lord over our lives as opposed to a program or a method or a lifestyle option a cup of coffee with a friend a what i need to do to fix my problems so much of it brothers and sisters is about us and our expectations of what we want rather than about jesus and his expectations for our lives. And this is why I say to many people, I wonder if you're truly saved, if you're truly a Christian. It's about more than just knowing some Bible verses or some Bible truths. It's about the beauty and grace and goodness of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that grows each day and each minute and each moment and brings light into the darkness of our lives and our hearts. And the sweetness about that, brothers and sisters, if we're willing to admit it, it's what we so desperately need. That's why Jesus says repent. The idea of repentance is that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot follow a method or program and just climb our way out of the pit. Because we are blind and we are lost and we are enslaved by our own dark desires and kingdoms. And that includes our pride and our belief in ourselves and our belief that we can save ourselves. 
our belief that we don't need a Savior and we don't need repentance. And we don't need to turn from ourselves and turn to Jesus as our only hope of salvation. We can't see it. And that's why we keep doing the same things over and over again. And that's why so much of what we call discipleship is not really discipleship. Because it's not about Jesus as the Lord and King of God's Word. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. Discipleship, according to Jesus, is a saving relationship. And it's about saving sinners through His Lordship over our lives. Discipleship, according to Jesus, is about saving sinners through His Lordship over our lives. In first century Palestine, and in the Roman Empire, the typical pattern of discipleship and discipleship making was that a potential student or disciple would approach a famous rabbi or teacher or philosopher. And if that potential student or disciple showed promise, if they were gifted, if they were wealthy, if they came from an influential family, the teacher would consider taking them on. It was this negotiated deal. What did the disciple have to offer? Would they become a great person or bring money or influence into the school? And the flip side was that they wanted or needed the name and reputation of the disciple maker. And if that disciple distinguished himself or herself, they would help run the master's school. And possibly one day they would take over the master's school. Or they would go out and set up a school of their own in a place like Jerusalem or Rome or Athens. Now you see this pattern. It's not that dissimilar to the way discipleship works in this day and age. How do we go to college? We go and look at the places that we want to go to. We make an application. And if we're gifted as athletes, maybe we'll get a scholarship. If we bring something to the table that's going to boost the reputation of the institution, maybe they will take us on. And then we choose from whoever is going to give us the best offer. And we go through and we excel and make a name for ourselves. And then perhaps when we graduate, we're able to come out and become a master or whatever it is on our own. And brothers and sisters, the same thing, quite frankly, happens in the church as well. You go to a famous church with a famous pastor. And maybe you decide to go to a famous seminary that has the name of that famous pastor. And maybe they consider you that you have talent and ability or a skill that's useful. And so they hire you as an intern. And after you're hired as an intern, you get to work with some of the famous pastors. And they mentor you and they shepherd you. And you're able to put that on your resume. And people consider, oh, this person has worked here and here and here. And they've been through here. They're capable of coming and taking over a big church and making a name for themselves. Does that sound familiar, brothers and sisters? And it's how things work. But what all of that fails to consider... is that what we really need, brothers and sisters, is to be saved from our sin. And there's no amount of training or programs or influence or great degrees or great recognition 
And there's no man who can come and save us from our sin or change our past. And very clearly in Matthew 4, this is not how Jesus makes disciples. Why? Because Jesus' discipleship, thank God, is about Jesus saving sinners who are not worthy or able to be his disciples. It's about Jesus saving sinners who have nothing to offer Jesus but their sinful, dark, totally depraved lives. It's about Jesus saving sinners who cannot save themselves. It's about Jesus saving sinners by taking complete ownership and control of every aspect of his disciples' lives. This, brothers and sisters, is lordship. It's rule. It's control. It's authority. And it's the only way Jesus makes disciples. He doesn't make disciples any other way. And this is the only way that Jesus saves sinners. And this is the only way that Jesus sanctifies sinners and separates them from their sin. And why is it this way? Because sinners, brothers and sisters, cannot save themselves. And so as you go down to verse 18 and verse 19, you see that Jesus' future disciples, they don't come to him and say, Jesus, we've got all these great things to offer you. Got a boatload of fish. Aren't you a happy guy? They do not come to Jesus. They do not choose Jesus. They don't even see Jesus. They are too busy working, trying to earn a living. Does that sound familiar? In verse 18, Jesus comes to them and he sees them. Verse 19, he chooses them. They do not choose him. This, brothers and sisters, is called election. It's the truth and grace of God. That sinners can't save themselves and God has to be the initiator. And in his mercy and grace, when our lives are saved, it's because he's invaded our lives. He's gotten a hold of us. He's interrupted all that we're doing. And he saved us when we could not even see who he is or was. And where does this all start? In verse 12. When Jesus, in obedience to God's word, moves to a part of Israel and Galilee that was cursed by God and condemned by his prophets and scorned by religious Jews because of its worldliness, its idolatry, and its ignorance. It's a place where people were more concerned, this Galilee region, which was the breadbasket of Palestine. It's a region where people historically were more concerned about earning a living than learning or living God's word. Brothers and sisters, does that sound familiar? They were more concerned about earning a living than living or learning God's word. If we're honest, that is our darkness, brothers and sisters, here in Silicon Valley. We struggle to parent our children. We struggle to maintain our marriages. We have disagreements or arguments among ourselves over any number of different things, many of them related to our finances, our work, our career choices. And we are so busy trying to earn a living that what matters most in our lives, the love of God and the love of people, gets trampled underfoot on a daily basis and we can't even stop ourselves from that process or that addiction.
And the good news of God's word and his grace and mercy is this is exactly where Jesus comes. And this is exactly where he repeatedly proclaims his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's a message, brothers and sisters, just as much for us as it was for them. And it's this place, this place of darkness, where Jesus comes looking for his disciples. Disciples who are not looking for Jesus. Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. They're busy doing their work. Fishing was a primary industry of Galilee. It was stinky. It was hard. It was manual labor, but it was profitable and it was essential. And this is because in pre-refrigeration era, dried and pickled fish was an essential staple for everyone. Soldiers, workers, people. And in first century AD, there were as many as 240 boats, according to Josephus, that worked or fished this tiny little lake, which was 8 by 13 miles. And among the many fishermen who were there, the two that Jesus sees and the two that Jesus chooses to be his very first disciples are two brothers, one who's named Simon and the other whose name is Andrew. And their names speak volumes. Simon is Greek for Simeon. Andrew is just a plain Greek name. Andreas, which is Greek for strong or manly. Or as my boys like to say, beefy. What are two nice Jewish boys doing with Greek names? What are we all doing with American names, right? It's assimilation. It's highly suggestive as you see these men. When you look at Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul's name before he's converted, Saul is living in a Gentile area in Tarsus. He's not living initially or born in Jerusalem. But he goes around with a Hebrew name, Shaul, from King Saul. Why does he do that? He's going to stand out from all the people in the neighborhood. Well, he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Even though they're born somewhere else, his parents are making it clear, no, we're Jews. We belong to the Most High God. We're children of the promise. And here are two nice Jewish, hard-working boys living in Palestine with Greek names. What did God say in the Old Testament about Jews who took on the customs and the ways of the surrounding nations? The surrounding idolatrous nations. When you take on the name, you take on the culture and you take on the authority or ownership. What did God say about that in the Old Testament? That to do so was to be an unfaithful covenant breaker, to be unclean, to be in violation and an offense to God, and to be unfit to worship God or to draw near to God. Why? Because your heart and your affiliation is somewhere else. You've broken the marriage. You're adulterous. You're idolatrous. Brothers and sisters, this is the beauty. This is who Jesus seeks. And this is who Jesus chooses to be his first disciples. Why? 
Because according to God's word, discipleship is about God drawing near to save and sanctify sinners who cannot save and sanctify themselves. And it's a most wonderful and beautiful thing. But brothers and sisters, when we think of discipleship as just a path to getting other people to come into the church, we've missed it completely. And how does Jesus make Simon and Andrew his disciples? How does he save and sanctify them? Let's think about this as we consider how we disciple our children. Let's consider this as we think about how we make disciples of Jesus Christ. How did Jesus do it? It's a good place to start and consider. Well, he comes and he disrupts their lives. It's very inconvenient and uncomfortable. How often when we gather together and consider what's before us, do we put the skids on because what's coming up is uncomfortable or difficult or foreign or different? And yet that's very much where Jesus goes because it's about his light invading our darkness. He disrupts their lives. These guys are in the middle of working. They've got things to do. They've got money to earn. They're probably working as part of a co-op for their family. They answer to other people. And in the middle of casting nets, this is when Jesus essentially comes and says, hey guys, drop everything and follow me. Verse 19. Follow me. It's a non-optional, urgent, and authoritative personal command that literally means, come now, come immediately after me. And what is Jesus commanding and demanding of Simon and Andrew with these words? He's commanding and demanding that the entirety of their lives come under his authority and rule. Not as a friend, not as a life coach, as Lord and King of their entire lives. It's submission. I'm asking you do, and you do it right away. I tell my boys this. To delay is to disobey. Well, I'll get there. Well, I'll do it when I have time. No. To delay is to disobey. Come immediately after me. And Jesus is commanding and demanding that their path, their walk, the direction of their lives is no longer under their father or their custom or their vocation. It's entirely being led by one person, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's calling them into fellowship, into unity. But that fellowship and unity is only going to happen as long as they are following Him and walking with Him. And then Jesus adds, And I will make you fishers of men. What does that mean? Is it a promise or is it a threat? His promise is that he is going to change who they are and what they are entirely. They will no longer be the same again. He is going to remake them and make them like him. Brothers and sisters, this is discipleship and this is lordship. And what does it require? Essentially, Jesus is asking them to trust him. It requires faith. Faith that leads to three actions or three works. Submission, separation, and sacrifice. That's the proof of faith. Submission, separation, and sacrifice. 
To come after Jesus is to obey his word without hesitation. To follow Jesus means that you have to separate or leave behind your career in this case. And as a principle, for us, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to leave your career. But as we go through the gospel, you see, Jesus asks us to separate from anything that holds us back from him. That can be our friends. That can be our family. It can be, at times, our place of work. What is it that holds us back from walking with Christ? We have a choice. We're either going to hang on to it or let go of it and follow Jesus. You can't have both. And the same is true of our sin, brothers and sisters. You cannot hang on to your sin or your sinful desires and walk with Christ. You're going to have to make a choice. You are going to have to submit to his authority. You're going to have to obey his command. You're going to have to separate from anything that holds you back. And you're going to have to sacrifice everything. We have to give up all that we are. So that Jesus, in turn, can give us all that he is. It's a steep cost, isn't it? And it's a path and a separation and a sacrifice and a submission that's going to take the disciples all the way to the cross. And it's why there are so few true disciples, brothers and sisters. Because we want to hang on to our lordship. We want to hang on to our lives. We want to hang on to our control. We want to hang on to our sin. And we cannot see the goodness that lies before us. We're unwilling to submit. We're unwilling to separate. We're unwilling to sacrifice. Because we don't believe Jesus is worth it. And something that comes up so often in the counseling room is, I don't understand, I don't understand, I don't understand. How much do you think Simon and Andrew understood about what Jesus was saying when he said, I will make you fishers of men? How much do you think they understood of what lay before them? Well, as you go through the Gospels, you see they didn't understand much. But they understood enough. They understood enough So that what we read in verse 20, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. There's only one thing you need to know, brothers and sisters, and understand. To be a disciple of Jesus. Is he worth it? That's it. You don't need to know all the details. You don't have to have a full systematic theology. You don't have to have... You know, where's this going to go? And what about this? And what about this? But I don't It's Look, is he worth it? If he is, you follow. If he's not, keep on doing what you're doing. But brothers and sisters, what we see with Simon and Andrew is that they do follow. And why are they able to do that? It's not because of themselves. It's because of the power and presence of Christ and his word in their lives. It's Jesus and his presence in their lives that makes this possible. How do we know if Christ is truly present in your marriage? How do you know if Christ is truly present in your life? How do you know if Christ is truly present in your ministry? There will be submission and separation and sacrifice to follow and obey Jesus. To be with him. That's the proof. 
because it's only when Christ is present in our lives that we are able to do what he asks of us. It's only when Christ is present that we're able to walk the extra mile. It's only when Christ is present with us, when we are able to love the unlovable. It is only when Christ is present that we are able to consistently bless those who curse us. It is only when Christ is present that we are able to share love and kindness and mercy and grace to people who have absolutely nothing to offer us but their hate and their disdain and their darkness. When I was at seminary, you'll know who are the guys who come and fill the pulpit here. More often than not, if you followed them, the guys from the seminary, they're typically foreigners. Julie was like, why, why do all the guys who you hang out with, why are they all like six foot five and speak a different language? I guess Ricardo's kind of the exception to that. And I've shared with Julie, I said, you know, when I was at seminary, one of the sweet things in hanging out with the foreign students is typically, unlike Americans, those foreign students had to leave everything to follow Christ. They had to leave their families. They had to learn a different language. They had to leave their jobs and careers. Now, that's not always true. But more often than not, when you bumped into them, you saw that there was incredible separation, incredible sacrifice in order to submit to Christ. And it's not because of what they did. It's because the fellowship was sweet. Because as you spent time with them, those things in the world were not part of their lives. And what you saw more often than not was the sweetness and the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. Now, that's not always true. But you see, what Jesus is trying to do for us, brothers and sisters, he's trying to separate us from everything that's destroying our lives so that he can come in and bring us into a place of light and goodness and love where he can pour into our lives and transform and change us and make us like him. And that's a beautiful thing. And as you come to verse 21 and 22, you see that this is not a one and done pattern of how Jesus makes disciples. Verse 21, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And Jesus called them. And what? Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him. In first century Galilee, there are two foundations to your identity in your life. Your work and your family. That's everything. You lose those two things, you're nothing. You have nothing. Your work and your family. Sounds like Asians, right? Maybe we should throw in education in there and it'd be more Asian. But nonetheless, this is, this is everything. And we see for James and John. They not only leave their vocation, release, that word means separating, let go of the nets, but they also left their father who ran the family business in order to be with Jesus. Now it's worth asking, brothers and sisters, what is it that has a hold on your life that's holding you back from your walk with the Lord? Is it our finances? Is it our career? Is it our friends? Is it our patterns of sin? Well, what's the remedy, brothers and sisters? The remedy is the gospel, that Christ has come near. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of Christ. The remedy is not a path, or asking Jesus for forgiveness, or doing A, B, C, D, and E. The remedy, brothers and sisters, is walking with the Christ who has already come to you. 
And as he grows in your life and as you walk with him and as he becomes greater and more beautiful and more wonderful and as his goodness fills your life, brothers and sisters, there's no room for all that other garbage in your life. If indeed you are a child of God. Well, the disciples follow Jesus and they follow Jesus in the same way Abraham followed God's promise, not knowing where they were going, but knowing who they were walking with. And that he was good for their promise. And this brings us to our third and final point for this morning. Discipleship, according to Jesus, is a new beginning, a new work, and a new family in Christ. Discipleship, according to Jesus, is a new beginning, a new work, and a new family in Christ. Though Christ calls us to give up everything, everything is trash. And in exchange... He gives us all that he is. And what he does through discipleship, and this is where sanctification lies, is he brings us into a new work and a new beginning and a new family. All of which is built around him. Now in the Old Testament, as you walk through the Old Testament, you're going to see in the Old Testament, the Old Testament goes through stories and it repeatedly goes through stories of brothers. Cain and Abel. Jacob and Esau, Joseph and Judah. And what's the recurrent theme in all those stories of pairs of brothers? There's stories about how sin divides those brothers and breaks them apart, right? And yet as we come to this passage, we see that what keeps these brothers together, and I don't think this is by accident, is the salvation and sanctification of Jesus Christ and Christ's presence in their lives. And for these brothers, for the rest of their lives, they will be together until they are killed. All of them except perhaps John. Through the presence of the Holy Spirit and through the presence of Christ's word in their life. And as Jesus brings them into this new life, he brings them into a new family. And that is why there is separation from their father. Because in Christ, they have a new father. And they are part of a new family. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It does not mean that Jesus wants you to dishonor your parents. Paul talks about it in 1 Timothy 5. But at the end of the day, you are part of a new family and you are part of a new work. And that work is the good work of Christ in saving sinners. And it is a fulfillment of all that God has promised. When Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. Where does this come from? Have a look in your Bibles at Jeremiah 16, 16. And we'll close with this. Jeremiah 16, 16. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them. From every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways, they are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Okay, what's going on here? I'm sure many of you are saying, okay, what's Pastor Mark talking about? Jeremiah 16, 16, it is an oracle of judgment. It's God saying 
to the idolatrous people in Israel who do not trust him and have assimilated and parted ways with the Lord. I'm coming for you. I'm coming to get you. Don't think you can avoid my judgment. I know where you all are. I see you. I see your sin. Don't think that you can hide under a rock or conceal or go somewhere and I'm not going to hold you accountable for your sin. I am going to send fishers and hunters or fishermen for you, whatever the deep dark hole is, to come and get you and pull you out and hold you accountable for judgment. And indeed the Lord does this. So what's Jesus saying when he says, I will make you fishers of men? Brothers and sisters, when Christ comes, he fulfills God's promise to end the curse. He is the son who will crush the serpent's head. He is the one who will bring light where there is darkness. He is the one who will come and in the areas of our curse and judgment and iniquity and sin, He will take that sin and instead give us righteousness for those who hear his command and are willing to walk with him. And so fishermen in the old covenant, a sign and symbol of judgment in the new covenant becomes a symbol of Jesus' deliverance and his salvation and sanctification, of taking people out of their darkness and bringing them into the light of God's truth and grace. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus did. And to disciples, he's saying, this is what you will do. You will be a discipleship and a disciple maker as I am. How? By bringing Christ and the light of his presence and his power and his word to people who are lost in darkness and sin. And brothers and sisters, this is true all the way to the cross where Christ takes the symbol of curse and judgment and transforms it into a symbol of grace and deliverance. That's what the cross is. And this, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus does in the lives of his disciples. He takes your sin, he takes your crimes, he takes your guilt, he redeems you. And instead of being ashamed and embarrassed, he uses those as symbols of his mercy and grace. And testimonies of, as we talked about this morning, our weakness and frailties and our shortcomings. And he uses them as a display of the greatness of God's kindness and mercy and goodness and his power to save as testimonies of God's power and presence in your life to come to others who are in darkness and show them that Christ has come near, he is alive, and there is a God who can save them and sanctify them from all unrighteousness and bring them into fellowship with the King. Brothers and sisters, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Have you submitted Have you separated and have you sacrificed everything? Have you surrendered and set apart anything that holds you back? Is Christ present in your life and is he worth it? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, would you make us your disciples so that we in turn might make disciples of not ourselves, Lord Jesus, but you. Would we be
be bright lights whose lives are transformed by your work in us, by fellowship with you, by your goodness and grace that abounds yet more in our lives. Would we be testimonies to the world, Lord Jesus, that your power and presence and your proclamation are greater than our sin. In your name we pray, amen.